it's the most wonderful time of the, there we go, y'all been listening to the radio, with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer, it's the most wonderful time of the year. In fact, it's the happiest season of all. With those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings, when friends come to call, it's the happiest season of all. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow, not in Arkansas. There'll be scary ghost stories, that's weird, and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing, and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Yes, the most wonderful time of the year. Oh, the most wonderful time of the year. This classic 1960s Christmas song is known by many of us. It's even been playing in the background in my study here at the church as I was preparing this sermon. But when that songwriter, Andy Williams, penned those words nearly 60 years ago, I wonder if he truly did experience this wonderful, happy, and cheerful time of the year. I wonder if Mr. Williams, not Alan, but Andy, actually experienced at Christmas time what he sung about so gleefully in that popular and well-sung Christmas song. Did he pin those words because his life was, in fact, wonderful all year long and the Christmas season was just a bonus on top of his good life? You know, an extra topping of awesomeness to his wonderful life. Or was the Christmas season and all the consumerism that comes with it, the days off from work, Food, friends, family, shopping, gifts, caroling, parties, and playing outside in the snow. Everything that the stereotypical American Christmas season projects, markets, and presents to us. Friends, is it all what it is up, cracked up to be? Or it is, a, is it a mirage of a wonderful time? Friends, if we were all totally honest, if Is the Christmas season for you and I a form of refreshment, a time of thanksgiving back to God for sending his son to this earth? Or is it a form of escapism? You know, a mental diversion away from having to think about and deal with the perceived mundane life. Or at the very least, a life that seems utterly meaningless most of the time. In other words, at the deepest heart level, is the Christmas season something we get excited about mainly because it's an escape for us from what life really feels like the rest of the year, which for many, it could actually be an unhappy life, an unfulfilling life, a woefully disappointing, confusing, stressful, exhausting, painful, and just flat-out hard life. Friends, Christmas season, just like any other season or festive celebration, it can certainly be something we look forward to and enjoy. I'm not trying to be Ebenezer Scrooge this morning. But we also must put 
our hearts on guard, shouldn't we? We can never put such high expectations on a time of year, a party, gifts, time off, seeing family and friends, or even looking for fulfillment in another relationship to a degree or depth that it was never intended to bear. But of all people, real Christians are to be the most realistic people living. In a fallen world, full of lies, deception, and mirages of a wonderful life. The true church of Jesus Christ is made up of true Christians who believe the Bible is truth, who actually believe this book is infallible, inspired, and authoritative for our life. Friends, that means because of what Christians believe about this book, whatever our God says is true is reality. As Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, we do not gather in church simply to sing and to persuade ourselves that all is well and to feel a little happier. Religion is not escapism. Everything else is escapism, but this is realism. In fact, the fact of the matter is the world we live in, the real world we live in, the other 11 months of the year isn't always so wonderful, is it? In fact, there are many who would say this is one of the hardest times of the year. And this raises a pressing question that 7 billion people on the planet today and people who have existed from the very beginning have been asking for a very long time. If our creator God is good and wise and sovereign, why is there so much evil, temptation, and suffering in this world? Where did it come from? Who started it? Has it always existed? What's the root cause of our problems and pain? And what is the only solution for it? Well, friends, to address those questions from God's perspective, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find it on page 2. Just page 2. And if you're not using a pew Bible, I'm sure it's still on page 2 in your Bible. The book of Genesis really sets the stage for the first five books of the Bible, as well as for the rest of the Bible. So the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is also known as the Pentateuch. It literally means the five books or the five scrolls, sometimes called the Law of Moses or the Book of the Law. And the book of Genesis is the leadoff hitter in the first set of these five books and really sets the stage for the rest of the entire Bible. The word Genesis means origin or beginnings. And we see this concept of beginnings with the very origin of the universe itself. For instance, look back with me in Genesis 1, verse 1. Very first verse. And so, friends, I just want to remind us here, the first verse sets the trajectory for how you understand the rest of the Bible. If we get this verse off, we get the rest of our purpose of living off. Listen carefully. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we're going to read that together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Thus, in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, we're going to read about some extremely important fundamentals and foundation for our existence. 
We will learn about the origin of the universe, the origin and order and complexity of the universe, the origin of the solar system and the atmosphere, the origin of life and living beings, plants, animals, and human beings. Now, we even learn about the origin of gender and sexuality, God making two distinct biological sexes, male and female, human beings being made as the only artwork in God's masterpiece that was uniquely made in his image. Logically flowing from God's crowning jewel of creation, Genesis chapter 2 teaches us about the origin of marriage between one man and one woman bound together by God through covenant for life. But the book of Genesis doesn't stop there. The book of Genesis is painfully honest and clear about the real world we really live in. You see, the book of Genesis also reveals to us right out the gate, the origin, the beginnings of evil, of shame, of fear, of suffering, of pain, of disappointment, and of death. Though it doesn't answer every question you and I may have about God's absolute sovereignty and the grotesque evil in this world like the book of Job forces us to wrestle with, the book of Genesis does give us the root cause or the seedbed of where our problems in life ultimately stem from. Thus, in our passage this morning in Genesis 3, we, we learn what the root cause is of our internal conflict, that war going on in your hearts as well as that relationship breakdown and relationship drama in your life. And moreover, we also see the deepest and most tragic problem of our relationship breakdown with God himself. Starting in the book of Genesis, we also found out that we don't live in a purely materialistic and naturalistic world. Not only is our God spirit, eternal, infinite, holy, all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere at once, we discover in Genesis there are also angelic creatures who abide in heaven. And some of them exist and live and abide among us. Some of these angels are good, holy, or elect angels. And some of these are really, really bad angels. The good angels dwell in the presence of God, but some are here on earth carrying out the purpose of Almighty God, serving for the benefit of God's elect. Hebrews 1.14 the bad angels, on the other hand, are also demonic spirits, unclean spirits, or demons. Paul calls them later in Ephesians 6.12, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, to amplify the origin and nature of these bad angels, in Revelation 12, so at the very end of the Bible, we, we read that a third of the stars of heaven fell, which metaphorically speaks of a third of the angels falling to the earth in judgment under the regime of their chief fallen angel, the dragon. Who is the dragon? Revelation 12, verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, based off of a few Old Testament passages and a few new, it appears that Satan's pride led to his downfall. Now, friends, no wonder why the scriptures warn all of us about the dangers of pride, too. Pride goes before destruction 
and a haughty spirit before a fall. Friends, when we are more full of ourselves, we are more like the devil than we are like Jesus. Desiring to exalt himself against the true God, ultimately Satan led a third of the angels falling with him. And according to the book of Jude and Revelation, Satan and his militant army of demons have no hope of ever being forgiven by God. They only await eternal judgment in the lake of fire. And thus the root, friends, of our spiritual warfare today The nature of our battles are not ultimately against flesh and blood. Today, we can find, we can trace their origin all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In other words, the spiritual battles we wage war against are against an invisible enemy. As Gavin Ortland has said, if demons were visible, we'd pray a lot more. And the book of Genesis also gives us the origin for why this created world experiences so much immense sorrow and pain, heartache and loss, suffering that can come from what we might call natural disasters, earthquakes, typhoons, floods, tornadoes, etc. But also other forms of worldwide suffering, sickness, divorce, disease, cancer, birth defects, and ultimately death. Which is why Paul says in Romans 8 that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth unto now. Friends, if we're going to understand our problems today and our pain today, you and I have to zoom out and we have to understand where it came from. This morning, what are your problems? What are the things keeping you up at night? What are the things that are a burden on your heart even this morning? You and I will never understand the purposes and the solution to those pains until we understand Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, in the midst of darkness and disappointment and a not-so-wonderful life for everyone, there is a glimmer of hope even in the darkest account in Genesis 3. Turn with me now to Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, 
I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have really two big main outline points, but I'm just going to give you the first one up front so you stay focused on the first half of the sermon. Point number one, to disobey a good, wise, and sovereign God is always a bad idea. To disobey a good, wise, and sovereign God is always a bad idea. In verse 1, we're introduced for the first time in the book of Genesis to a talking serpent, a snake-like animal that was in the earth that God created. Now, as odd and as strange as that might seem, especially if you're new to the Bible and you want to count it off as mythology, you know, a talking snake. I mean, people get locked up in hospitals if you start talking like that. Well, before you dismiss the Bible as hocus-pocus and made-up stuff, keep in mind what Genesis 1 taught before we got to Genesis 3. How was the world created? God spoke it out of what? Nothing. He spoke it into existence, ex nihilo. That means there is nothing impossible for God to create in his world. There is nothing at all. In fact, in the book of Numbers, if preachers and prophets don't get God's work done, he can use a donkey 
to rebuke people with a human voice coming through an animal. And that's exactly what he did with Balaam's donkey. That's not a compliment to preachers, by the way. It's always a way to keep us humble. That God doesn't need us. He could use livestock. Nonetheless, here I am. And then in the New Testament, we see unclean spirits or demons inhabiting unbelievers and even animals. You remember Mark chapter 5, where the man with the legion of demons is being oppressed and harassed day and night. Jesus says, what is your name? And he says, my name is Legion. The demon speaks through a human to Jesus, and yet Jesus delivers and rescues that man and sends those demons into what? To pigs. A great way to lose your sausage for the whole year. But nonetheless, we are seeing in God's world, God can do anything, and demons can inhabit all sorts of things. Nonetheless, in verse 1, the most significant thing, friends, about the serpent is not that he spoke in human words, but what we learn of the serpent's character. Look what the text tells us. Now, the serpent was more crafty, this is the English Standard Version, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Uh, That word crafty can mean cunning or shrewd. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, this word is used positively to speak of the word of prudence. Uh, What does it mean to be prudent? It means to be skillful and cautious and precise in how you make decisions. Like an undercover narcotics police officer watching the drug dealer's every move. Like a fully decorated military sniper watching through his scope his target's every move. In other words, the serpent's character is not one of sloppiness, slackness, stupidity, carelessness, or ignorance. No, this serpent is skillful. He's knowledgeable. He is able to calculate with subtlety and accuracy what he's aiming to accomplish. That means his character, friends, can be lethal if his craftiness and scheming is used for evil purposes in our life, if his purposes are in fact to kill, steal, and destroy. So what does this crafty serpent do in our passage today? Who does he approach first in this account? Look at me again in verses 1b to 5. He said to the woman, God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Several things are worth noting, friends. First, Note that the serpent first approaches the woman and not the man. He approaches the woman and not the man. Again, verse 1, he said to the woman. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman. Now before we understand the shrewdness of the serpent's tactics and how he is craftily approaching the woman and not the man, we need to understand who the woman is and her God-given purpose on earth. So who is this woman? 
According to Genesis 1, the woman is the man's co-image bearer created by God. She is equal in dignity, value, and worth. Uh, Friends, that means that men are not greater or more valuable than women, and women are not greater and more valuable than men. We are equally made in the image of God. And according to Genesis 2, the woman was created second after the man. The man was created from the ground to work the ground. He was created to provide, preserve, nurture, and protect the Garden of Eden. And the man was given authority from God to name the animals. And friends, all this was an essential part of the God-given commission to take dominion over the earth. The woman shows up on the scene after Adam is created and given his work. And different from Adam, she is not created from the ground, but from Adam's side, his ribs. And thus, just like Adam's work would correspond to how God made him, the woman is made in such a way that she would correspond with her purpose, her function, her strengths would correspond to how she was made too. If you're unfamiliar with what the commission is that God gave the first man and first woman, in other words, the very purpose of why they were placed on earth, listen to Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in order for the man and the woman to fulfill this mandate, to take dominion, to bear children, God made them for him, and God made them for one another. Together, and not apart, would be how God designed a man and a woman in marriage to live, to worship God together, to obey God together, to submit to God together, to enjoy God together, to live their lives and spread his image all over the earth together. Consequently, then, she would be similar but different from the man. The man being created first in the order of the family, given authority over the household and to take dominion over the earth, the woman is called the man's helper. It's a term not of weakness or inferiority, but of strength aid and an essential source of virtue and value in the world God made. Literally, she is called a corresponding or complementary helpmate. The woman was the last work in God's creation, not because it was the leftovers from God's creation, but we could say he saved the best for last. And I just gained encouragement and points from all the sisters here. The Lord said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man should be alone. This was not speaking that God's creation was somehow an error or had failed, but he had not completed his masterpiece until he had made the woman. Again, she was created like Adam, the first man, being a real human being with a soul. She would be different, biologically different, but also with strengths and abilities that the man did not have and he needed. These differences are not a problem to overcome or a competition to fight against, but something to champion and embrace as a part of God's good and wise design. So friends, if the first thing worth noting is that the serpent approaches the helper first, and not the man, then what is the second thing worth noting? 
Well, secondly, the serpent's crafty and cunning words to the woman are about who? They're about God. It's an assault. It's a slithery attack to undermine the character and the word of God. In fact, in the entire chapter, did you know that the serpent only speaks twice in the whole chapter? Verse 1 and verses 4 and 5. In both instances, he seeks to put doubt into the woman's mind about God's character and God's word, which is really just an attack to undermine God's good and wise authority over her life. In verse 1, he puts suspiciousness into the woman's mind about something God clearly and unmistakably said to the man in Genesis 2. Did God actually say? What did God actually say to Adam? Look back with me in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 is the key that unlocks the purpose and meaning of chapter 3. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Friends, that is unmistakably clear, right? He commanded the man before the woman was formed and by his side, he gave him a positive command of blessing and a negative command that required obedience. The first was a positive command. Enjoy the world I made for you. Eat from every tree of the garden. Delight in it. Take pleasure in it. There is no fault in it, with one exception, one prohibition, one boundary that Adam was not to cross. He was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if he did, God says he would die. So how does the woman respond to the serpent's doubt-filled question? Well, the woman first positively affirms what God had said. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. And then she adds her own prohibition that God never said, neither shall you touch it. Uh, Just kind of a side mark application. We as human beings have a tendency to either add to God's word or subtract to it. Uh, And and God says we are to do neither. (laughs) That means we need to be diligent students of God's word, not hearsay students, not I grew up that way students, but actually be careful students of God's word, neither adding to it or taking away from it. And she knows what God says would happen if she partook of the fruit. She got the clear warning, right? She knows God warned the man and the consequences that would come afterwards. She knew that if we ate these things, if we ate from that tree, we would die. But what the woman knew in her head would slowly but surely be forgotten from her heart. She began suffering from that 18-inch heart disease. She knew what God had said. And Eve let her emotions, her desires, her feelings, what sounded good to her ear and looked good in her eyes, to control her 
like a steering wheel and not the word of God. She opened herself up to be further tempted by entertaining a voice that did not come from God. And so the serpent sees that she's getting weak. He puts more ammo in the weapon and he anties up his temptation again and he actually gives a negation, a contradiction. You will not surely die. Who told you that? And in this moment, he begins to call into question the character and the authority of God. In verses 4 and 5, he tempts the woman to think that God is somehow holding out on her. God is stingy. He's an Ebenezer Scrooge. He's not good. And then the serpent makes it real appealing. Go get what you want. Go do what you want to do. Go be whatever you want to be. And then you will be free. You will be liberated. You will be fulfilled. You will be happier. You will have a wonderful life. Oh, Eve, you would be just like God. Friends, Eve grew discontent with who God made her to be and how God had provided for her. Friends, never let discontentment go unchecked or unrepented of. Discontentment always grows to the point of unbelief if we're not careful. Friends, Eve was made in the image of God. She was made by her maker to reflect and look like him. What did she lack? And instead, she wanted higher status. She wanted greater control. She wanted more power. Being a helper was just not enough for her. The creature, friends, is now beginning to want what exclusively belonged to the creator. Friends, our hearts are desperately sick, aren't they? We should never follow our hearts if our hearts are not hearing from God. John Owen once said, a man's heart never fails to deceive him when he places his trust in it. The number one place this ancient servant attacked friends in God's perfect creation, in God's perfect and pure marriage, was the hottest place of the battle that we will still face even in our lives today. And it is this. It is a conscientious daily choice. Will we listen to the word of God as revealed in Scripture, or will we listen to our feelings? The word of God or our desires? The word of God or a different voice? that undermines or contradicts, thus saith the Lord. This ancient serpent, friends, is more than some zoo animal or an Arkansas pest control predator. This ancient serpent is none other than Satan himself. You might say, who is Satan? He is an angel of light. Wrong. He disguises himself as an angel of light. 
He's the tempter. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning, a schemer who plots, plans, and tricks to wreak havoc in people, in marriages, in churches, and in human societies. Friends, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. The enemy loads more ammo in the weapon when any time the word of God is boldly proclaimed and humbly obeyed, you best believe the devil is right there. That's what this whole section in Genesis is all about. God speaking the world into existence out of nothing. God blessing them with blessings and dominion to be fruitful and multiply. Telling them to enjoy with one prohibition. And then there's another voice that interrupts their peace and communion with God. And it is not a voice that we should listen to. Friends, you will always find the most fierce deceptive and crafty scheming of the devil at play anytime God is at work in your life. God is working and so is the enemy. Peter said in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Author Mark Jones says, no one can accuse the devil of laziness. He is a vicious and persistently hard worker who throws flaming darts at God's people. One of the clearest and most frequent points of attack of our ancient serpent is how he attacks our minds on how we view God. John Owen also said this, flesh and blood is apt to have very hard thoughts of God, to think that he is always, yes, one that cannot be pleased and that anything is more desirable than coming to his presence. This was his design from the beginning. He led our first parents into hard thoughts about God. Has God said so? Has he threatened you with death? He knows full well it would be better for you. It is folly to doubt God's love. He is good, gracious, tender, kind, and loving to his children. Doubting this comes from Satan's deceit. Friends, are you doubting God's love for you this morning? Did you doubt his love this past week? Do you feel like God's just given up on you? He told you to get off the bus and hitchhike on to heaven by yourself. Do you feel like you've done something that God can never forgive you of? Those thoughts that creep up at night and you can't go back to sleep. Do you think God has said you're not good enough? Friends, never forget this. None of us are good enough for God. None of us are worthy. And yet in his grace and kindness, he makes us worthy in his sight. That's what grace is. God pursues us and gives us what we don't deserve. Friends, anytime you begin doubting God's love for you, it's not coming from God. We should listen less to our hearts and it should cause us to cling tighter to what God has said about his love for us through Jesus Christ. Friends, understand this, that Christ was assaulted himself and he was tempted against that ancient serpent. Remember at the outset of Jesus' ministry for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil and yet our Lord was victorious. He resisted every temptation that came his way. And friends, here's the bad news. You and I, 
if we try to resist temptation in our own strength, guess what's going to happen? Face plant every time. Every time. Be careful of living on a spiritual high, not thinking that one day you may have a spiritual low. Usually anytime God's doing a great work in our life and you're elated, you're just walking on cloud nine and water with Jesus, do not be surprised that there are traps laid out for you when you're not looking. You see, friends, the serpent pits his word against God's word. And friends, this is the groundwork. This is where the hottest part of the battle has always been and always will be till Christ comes back. It's over the nature of God's word. What did Paul do in 2 Corinthians 10 when he told the Corinthians how to fight? Did he say get bigger biceps or more powerful guns? No, he said this, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments with every lofty opinion, raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What did Jesus say in the wilderness? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Friends, no temptation has overtaken us that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. That's a promise you can bank your life on. But if we're not looking to that promise, we will fall to temptation every time. My encouragement to each one of us, begin reading the Bible on a regular basis if you haven't started. It's never too late to begin reading God's word. And if you struggle with discipline, as we all do, find one or two believers who seem to be more disciplined than you. You know, if someone comes to me and says, Pastor Blake, I want to get in shape. Well, the first thing I'm going to say is stop going to Dunkin' Donuts every Monday. Go to the gym with someone who looks like what you want to be like. And the same goes for our Christian walk. We all have flabbiness to ourselves and some muchal atrophy. We need help. We need encouragement. We need one another to learn what it means that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from his mouth. Uh, friends, we need more churches in the River Valley that feel less like cruise ships and party boats and more churches that are like combat boats and battleships. We are in a war. And the one thing we need at church and the one thing we need at home is men and women who love the Bible, believe the Bible, obey the Bible, and preach and teach the Bible. Pray that CCBC would not be a party boat, but a battleship for King Jesus. So what did Eve do? And where on earth is her husband? In verse 6, we read how these doubts about God were eventually believed. She took the fruit in hopes to gain that which she thought she lacked from God, and she even led her husband into sinful disobedience with her. In verse 7, their knowledge of evil, sin, and shame was first experienced like a bunch of cold water being thrown in your face when first waking up, they experienced something they had never experienced ever in their existence. As soon as the fruit touched the tip of their tongue, thinking it would have given them pleasure and delight in endless life, it soon did not deliver what the serpent's words had promised them. 
Yes, they began to know good and evil like God, but friends, remember, God never knew evil through experience. God has never sinned. He never tempts anyone to sin. And therefore, when it says that God knows good and evil, it's not because he became sinful. That means the first man and first woman experienced the lethal, shameful, regretful, exposing consequences of disobeying our good, wise, and sovereign God. Friends, they began to know evil by evil becoming a part of them. So in their attempt to cover up their nakedness, which they perceived was exposing and embarrassing, a human being experienced for the first time a guilty conscience. Look back in Genesis 2.25. Look at Genesis 2.25. When God created everything good and man and woman trusted God in the way he made them, In Genesis 2.25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But that's not what's going on now in Genesis 3, is it? This was before they heard the wrong voice. But now they're full of shame, trying to pathetically cover up their pain and bad decisions with fig leaves. Friends, can't we do the same thing in our own life? our greatest attempts to Photoshop our life, cover up our lives, self-medicate, fake it to make it. It doesn't work, does it? It's exhausting trying to pretend we're not okay. It's futile to be our own savior. So what did they do? The better question is, what did God do? In verse 8, God takes the initiative, did you notice that? To pursue them. He doesn't call out to the woman, and he doesn't call out to the man and the woman together. He calls out to who? He calls out to the man, Adam, the leader, the head of the marriage, the, the one created first and gave the first command to work the garden, named the animals, and the clear command of what trees to eat from and the one tree to not eat from. Oh, friends, where as Satan tempted the woman in order to disrupt, divide, and destroy the marriage, God speaks to the man first to reassert the created order back to its original design. And as they both sensed his very presence among them after plunging into sin, not only did they feel exposed, not only did they feel shame, not only did they have a guilty, dirty conscience, but now fear has entered the human heart for the first time. It's the first time in human history where the guilty human conscience is screaming on the inside. Something's wrong. I'm in trouble, and God knows about it. Did you know what Adam said? I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. You know, as my kids get older, I'm not as good at beating them in hide-and-go-seek as I used to. They've gotten better at hiding, and I've gotten slower and put on a few pounds. But my youngest still cannot escape my sight because I know every nook and cranny of the house. And friends, our God knows every nook and cranny of his world. There is no place that we can hide 
from our maker. We can run like Jonah, but it's just going to make the pain and regret even worse. You know what's ironic here? The text says they were hiding from the presence of the Lord, well, or attempting to hide. That just shows you how ridiculously foolish it is to run from God. It's exhausting. It's silly. It's a waste of time. We can't run from God. They can't run from God. The people you're trying to share the gospel with, they can't run from God either. Thomas Watson once said, let me warn you this day not to sin in secret either. Know that you can never sin so privately, but that there are always two witnesses, God and your conscience. So what happens next? God calls the man on the carpet. He addresses the man, not in the form of ignorance on God's part, as if God didn't know where Adam was, but in the question God addresses, it exposes and awakens the man's guilty conscience. Adam, where are you? Verse 9. Verse 11, he then asked him, well, who told you that you were naked? In other words, where did you get that knowledge from? You were created naked and you were not ashamed in a perfect world with a perfect wife in a perfect circumstance. No shame, no fear, no guilt. And now you know it. Did you not listen to what I clearly commanded you in the garden? The man then does what? He shifts the blame. The voice of God and the presence of God is shining so brightly on his dark sin, he can't take it. He's trying to hide from God, but he can't. He's been caught. He's tried covering up his shame, but he can't. His siren on the inside won't turn off. He knows he's guilty. And now the man goes as low as he can in his fear and shame. He blames the woman for eating the fruit. And he even blames God for giving him such a woman. So what does God do now? Notice that God doesn't immediately respond to the man. He takes the microphone from Adam's mouth, and then he puts it to Eve's mouth. Eve, what, have, what is this you have done? And the woman like the man, tries to take the light off of her sin and shifts the blame on the serpent. Uh, Eve was the first one that ever existed that threw out the devil made me do it card. And guys, that ain't going to be any way possible with God. The devil don't make anybody do nothing. That is southern Louisiana, Arkansas, D.C., Georgia mixed together impersonation. The devil doesn't make anybody do anything. The devil only makes the opportunity look enticing. It's our sin that entices us, and he just makes it look good and offers us a false promise. Don't ever tell God the devil made you do it. He's already heard that before. As sinners, we love to blame shift, don't we? We are experts. We get our PhDs in blame shifting. 
We know when our consciences are bearing witness we're wrong, we try to replay events in our head over and over, telling ourselves, convincing ourselves we're innocent, we're justified, we're right, they're wrong. And it's from as early as children, we are experts on writing false narratives about other people and telling half-truths about them. And by nature, we are allergic to being truth-tellers about our sin. And we are too cowardice and prideful to take responsibility for our own actions and our own words. And by nature, as sinners, we love the dark too, don't we? As one theologian said, how dark is the human heart? Is it possible that the horror of the Holocaust or other expressions of genocide actually reflect the darkness within each one of us? We find comfort in the dark because it protects us from confronting our sinfulness. To disobey a good, wise, and sovereign God is always a bad idea. So if heeding the wrong voices is a bad idea and trying to live our way over God's way is a bad idea and living with the burden of unconfessed shame and guilt and fear, then what's our only hope? Who can fix our shattered, broken, perverse, dark, twisted, depraved lives? And that leads to point number two. We cannot defeat all evil nor eradicate all suffering nor save ourselves, but God can. We cannot defeat all evil, nor eradicate all suffering, nor save ourselves, but God can. In verses 14 to 19, we see several things unfold as a consequence of the first man and the first woman's disobedience against God. First, in verse 14, we see God pronounce judgment on the serpent. Though the man and woman chose to sin against God, the sin was first present in the heart and character of that ancient serpent. Sin entered the world through that serpent to the man and the woman, and they both took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. Condemning the whole human race, we now inherit Adam's guilt, Adam's sin nature, and Adam's condemnation and death sentence. So God speaks now to this deceitful, scheming, and liar of a serpent. This created being that disrupted God's created order. He tells the serpent his status will be brought even lower into the dust and one day be finally destroyed at a future time. In verse 15, from that day forward in the garden, God says there will be enmity. The word means hostility or hatred between the spiritual enemy and unbelievers who are led by him and follow him all his minions, and there will be a war with the offspring of the woman. In other words, there will come a day in the distant future that God would bring about another man, an offspring, a second Adam, if you will, who will perfectly image God, who will take dominion over the earth, who will subdue the serpent and bear lasting fruit for God's glory. According to verse 15, this offspring will be born of a woman, And he will bruise the head of that slithery, crafty serpent. He will send a fatal death blow, a lethal once-for-all kill shot to the head. Basically, the evil one, and evil as we know it, friends, has an expiration date. 
on God's plans. Isn't that good news? That's why this chapter is so dark. This is what this world is like without God. And yet God gives a flashlight, a glimmer of light going, one day that evil one and evil as we know it will be no more. God will one day end our suffering and sin and Satan's schemes that Adam and Eve and Satan brought into the world. He shall bruise your head, but the text also says, you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. Now, this is speaking of the spiritual forces of evil. Satan's offspring and unbelievers led by him will have hatred and enmity against God, his son, and his church until Christ comes back to the earth. This speaks both of God's corporate elect people, but also the offspring, singular, the seed, the one who would come from the womb of a woman, namely Jesus Christ, the God-man who will put the devil to open shame on the cross, the one who will bind the strong man, the one who will overcome the world, the one who will destroy the power of death and deliver those through the fear of death who've been in lifelong slavery. Friends, this is the true meaning of Christmas. I like Andy Williams, and I like it's the wonderful time of the year, but that is a pathetic, that is a cheap offer when Jesus gives us the real meaning of what a wonderful life is. Friends, Jesus is the first glimmer of light in shining with hope in this passage. This is the proto-evangelium. You might say, huh? Well, it's in your bulletin. You can look it up. It's two Greek words, proto, that means first, evangelium, which means gospel, the first preaching of the gospel. The first preaching of the gospel is not John 3, 16, y'all. need to read that Old Testament. This good news has been preached from the garden before Jesus would go to that Garden of Gethsemane. Friends, one day it would be fulfilled in the womb of a virgin woman named Mary. Friends, this is why the Christmas season is so wonderful, that it doesn't matter how unwonderful or unfulfilling or unhappy your world and your life has been this year. The one thing that brings us the most joy is screaming off this page. And one day it was fulfilled in Matthew 1, 18 to 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why is that relevant to the garden, friends? The presence of God, God being in the garden with Adam and Eve, after they sinned, brought fear and shame and conviction. But the presence of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the offspring of the woman, has now brought truth and grace. 
John 1, verses 1 to 5 says, in the beginning, oh, does that sound familiar? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14 of John 1, we read, In the Word became flesh, that second Adam, the true God-man, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, Jesus came as God in human flesh, to rescue us that we might be reconciled to him. Friends, is life hard for you right now? Has it been hard for you this year? Are you running from God? Are you trying to hide in shame from others who are trying to help you? Friends, do you think you've done something that God could never forgive you of? Don't listen to your fears. Listen to Christ. Don't listen to your feelings of guilt and shame. Listen to Christ. Don't listen even to your friends, a pastor, a spouse, a child, a grandchild, a grandparent, or any human being if they are telling you something that does not line up with the Word of God. Friends, look to Christ, the eternal Word, And listen to him. He has come in human flesh to be with us. He came to this fallen, sin-stained world. And friends, he died on a tree. But it was not a tree of blessing. It was a tree accursed of God. Jesus says, get out of the way. What God said in the garden, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. Christ said, I will take on the punishment. I will die in your place. I will bear the penalty that you and I deserve. And he appeased God's wrath. He satisfied the requirements of God's law. Jesus was good enough. Jesus was righteous enough so that guilty, filthy sinners who are not can be made right with him. God raised him from the dead, vindicated his son, showing that Jesus is the proto-euangelion from Genesis chapter 3. He is the seed of the woman who came to crush the head of that serpent. Friends, Jesus came and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yet, until God ushers in the new heavens and new earth, living in this fallen world will still be painful and hard. Forgiveness of sin is offered, but the consequences of sin may stay with us for a lifetime. That's why verses 16 and 19 tells us where the root of most of our problems are in our relationships. In verse 16, if you look down with me, God speaks then to the woman. And he says that what Satan truly accomplished with Eve and what sin has done in our hearts, we will make good gifts from God like marriage and children, and they will be difficult for us. Friends, in other words, it will not be naturally easy for us as men and women to live as God created us to live. 
He says to the woman, from this point forward, every married woman will be frustrated and tempted with the envy of Eve until the end of time. Look what he says in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What are the consequences of Eve's sin? Childbearing will be painful. Childrearing will be painful and difficult. But so will marriage. The Hebrew word there in verse 16, translated contrary, can also be translated as against. Even in Genesis 4, 7, it's used again to speak of sin's adversarial nature. Genesis 4, 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary or against you, but you must rule over it. Uh, sisters, one of the most ongoing temptations for married, win, uh, married women will be to envy your husband's leadership, envy his headship, envy his authority in the home, a tempting desire to usurp his leadership, to undermine his leadership, a desire to control your husband. This will be one of the biggest temptations for every woman in a fallen world for the rest of their life. The man then will either abdicate his role or abuse his role, being harsh in response to his wife's influence. Ladies, let me just be loud and clear here because God's word is. That means you will be more easily tempted to find yourself discontent in life rather than content. Discontentment is not an excusable sin. Discontentment is what got us in this mess in the first place. Eve tried to grab what she thought God had forbid. She was dissatisfied and discontent with what she did not have, envying what she wished she had. And friends, you will find yourself tempted to gain control of situations and people. And ladies, using your emotions, words, feelings, and relational cultivating strengths for selfish and prideful ends. This is also true for women in the church. Even born-again Christian women who genuinely love Jesus will be times tempted to undermine and usurp the authority of biblically qualified men who serve as pastors. That's why we shouldn't be surprised when discontentment is in the top three unspoken, respectable sins even in the church. This is exactly what Paul had to deal with when he was instructing Timothy about leadership in the church. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Friends, we shouldn't be surprised when Satan wreaks havoc in a church towards both men and women, towards leadership and members. Friends, if the local church is God's primary vehicle to reach the nations for Christ, Satan will be on the front porch waiting for someone to let him in. John MacArthur once said, Satan is most effective in the church when he comes not as an enemy, but as a false friend. Not when he persecutes the church, but when he joins it. Not when he attacks the pulpit, but when he stands in it. 
Likewise, Rosalia Butterfield has said, as a pastor's wife for many decades, I will tell you that Satan's widest angle on your church is the most unhinged woman. And then, after indicting the serpent, and then speaking to the woman, now he speaks to the man. In verses 17 to 19, the Lord pronounces a curse on the land from which Adam would work and the land from which Adam was made. Thus, from our human bodies to the created world, to the goodness of work, pain, frustration, and futility, and meaninglessness will be a struggle in this life. Friends, God created work to be good and noble as an expression of worship and provision, but because of our fallen nature, but because of the curse of the earth, we will either be idle in our work or we will make an idol out of our work. We need God to change our perspective even about the goodness of work, even when it feels meaningless. A world that was created good, full of blessing and joy, has now been disrupted by the curse of sin. So what did God charge Adam wrong with? If Eve listened to the serpent, what did Adam do wrong? Look what he says in verse 17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Gentlemen, I speak as a man to men and I speak as a man who has been broken, humbled, and has experienced the Lord's patience in my life, maturing and growing up as a man. So what I'm about to say is I'm speaking from a broken man to broken men, not as someone who's arrived. The birth of male passivity took place when Adam followed Eve rather than leading her. Friends, that is the crux of male passivity, is abdication, backing off, taking the easy route, Allowing your wife to lead you instead of you humbly and courageously leading her. Friends, if we want to see a resurrected society, a resurrected country, I want to see churches really mature to be what God's called the church to be, it will start with the men. Where are you? God said to Adam. The woman was deceived, yes but God held Adam responsible for not protecting her, not pastoring her, not telling her no. He should have rebuked her because he feared God. But what Adam did that day is he feared his wife's displeasure more than God's. And that, friends, is why our world in many ways, our families and our churches and relationships are in such a mess Because the women want to be like the men and the men want to stay little boys. May God have mercy on us not to repeat Adam and Eve's failures. May we all look to Christ who humbly submitted to his heavenly father and look to Christ who courageously leads his church and washes her in the water of the word. May husbands be quick to point their wives to what the words of Christ says more than what their selfish desires want. May the women in the church humbly submit to their husbands as unto the Lord, knowing that a precious, gentle, and quiet spirit is beautiful in his sight. 
Friends, that's not fuddy-duddy 1950s, leave it to beaver. That's the Bible. That's God reasserting how he made us as men and women. As we close this chapter, what does the man and woman have to face as a result of their sin? A lot of us hear Christian sermons and we want to end with a hoorah, roller coaster, yay for Jesus. But as Christians, we're realistic people believing in a real God in a real world that has consequences. In verse 20, the man uses his authority good. Good job, Adam. But he names his wife Eve, which means life giver or mother of all living. It's as if in the midst of shame, guilt, rebuke, and bad news, Adam's beginning to believe the hope of the promise in verse 15 that an offspring would come from the woman and crush the head of the serpent. Then verse 21, God then mercifully clothes both Adam and Eve with better garments than what they could clothe themselves with. They had puny little fig leaves, and God takes an animal skin and clothes them. Isn't that just a preview of the gospel itself? That we stand before a holy God in filthy rags, even our best of works are worthless to him, and Christ says, I'll give you white wedding garments that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, so that when you come to the marriage supper, you will be beautiful, washed, and ready for me. He, in exchange, gives us what we cannot do for ourselves. He gives us his righteousness. Verse 22, God cuts them off from the tree of life, which was the lifeline to experience life forever. Verse 23, he then sends them out. He banishes them from the garden. He removes them from paradise. Verse 24, God sends an angelic creature, a cherubim, to protect the garden from reentry to do the job Adam failed to do. Friends, there is always forgiveness at the cross, but there are always consequences for our sin. What's the root cause of our problems and pain in this world? Who can save us from our distorted desires? Who can resurrect our dying bodies? Who can transform our dysfunctional families? Who can reform and revive a disorderly church? Who can strengthen a divided nation? Who can set and rescue a deceived and lost world? We cannot defeat evil. We cannot eradicate all suffering. We cannot save ourselves, but God can. God creates, Satan counterfeits. God forgives, Satan accuses. God tells the truth, Satan lies. God only wants what's best for us. Satan only wants what's terrible for us. God gives clarity. Satan only confuses. God brings order out of chaos. Satan brings chaos and undermines God's order. God's authority is for our good. Satan's authority is for our slavery and demise. Where sin has stained us, Christ can cleanse us. When our desires are distorted about gender and sexuality, Christ can make us pure and lovely in his sight. When our desires are distorted about marriage, the gospel teaches us humble submission and sacrificial service. Where sin isolates us all by ourselves, Christ pursues us, clothes us, and unites us with him and his people. Where sin ruins a family, Christ comes and makes us one of God's children into his family. Martin Lloyd-Jones once gave us the root cause of why we don't see the solution to our greatest problems. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means the only way to understand yourself or your life is to start with God. And right at the very beginning, the Bible takes us there. If you are not clear about this, you will go wrong everywhere else. Whose voice 
has the controlling influence on your life? Is it God? Or is it something or someone else? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you have shown us the root cause and problems of our world and our lives. But that you've also given us the solution in Christ. And Father, we need Jesus every day to resist temptation, to discern truth from error, uh, to see our marriages and our families and our churches and our communities resurrected. Father, we pray even the glimmer of hope, the first preaching of the gospel from Genesis 3, would give us much to think about this Christmas season, that knowing Christ and the abundant life he offers truly is the most wonderful life with you. In Jesus' name, amen.